Thank you, Diana. Nanni. That's Malayalam for thank you. Thank you, Jesus Youth. Jesus Youth are yet another gift from the church in India to us here in Australia. So it's lovely to have you here in the cathedral. And I want to see you more and more high profile in the archdiocese too. So, evening came and morning came, the seventh night. God rested on the seventh day, but I must speak on the seventh night. So welcome to all of you, a special welcome to those who have run the marathon of the seven nights. We began in wintertime and it's already spring. It really has been quite a journey, so if you have done the seven nights, we should give you a medal or a certificate or something. So well done, but if you have braved the storms of Brisbane to be here tonight too, you need some kind of prize, so let me try and offer it. Last time, uh, greetings to those who are watching online. There are, there are many, many people out there who, who watch these sessions online, so whoever you are and wherever you are, nice to be with you too. Last time I, I was talking about St Paul and my claim was that if he isn't the founder of Christianity he is in some ways the midwife of Christianity as it took shape in history. Now the very first texts of the New Testament which probably date to the late 40s we think that Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica is the earliest text of the New Testament, written about 49, shall we say. Very hard to be precise, but it seems to be about that period. So the very first texts that make up the New Testament, this collection of texts that change the world, the very first of the texts were letters. And they were letters written on the run because I suggested that Paul's first and best option was to go personally to communities that were in trouble. And his communities were often in trouble. Just by the way, if you think there was ever a golden age in the church, just read the letters of Paul carefully. You'll see that there was blood on the floor from day one. In that sense, the church has always been a mess. So I don't think that we had this golden age when we got it all right then something went wrong at some point fairly early on and we've been plummeting downhill at a great rate ever since. That's not the way it happened, it's not the way it happens now. If the church is a mess now, well, so we were in the very earliest days. Now, Paul's first option was to go personally to put out the fires. If he couldn't go personally, he'd send one of his close co-workers, people like Timothy, Silvanus or whoever. Paul, remember, was head of a large, complex and costly missionary team. So he'd send one of his deputies, sometimes with a, a letter in hand. If he couldn't go personally or send one of his deputies with a letter, what he'd do is he'd write a... No, he wouldn't write a letter, he would dictate a letter. We know that much. He dictated the letters. So the earliest texts are all letters. And yet right there at the heart or in some ways at the fountainhead of the New Testament, we don't find letters, remembering that the New Testament, like the Old Testament, is not arranged chronologically. 
In other words, it's not the earliest texts first. We don't start the New Testament with 1 Thessalonians. We start, in fact, with the Gospel of Matthew, which was probably written in the early 80s of the first century. So it's a theological arrangement and not a chronological arrangement that we find in the New Testament. And that too has its significance. But almost certainly, I say as the thunder rumbles around the cathedral, (laughs) almost certainly the first of the Gospels written was that thunderous text we call the Gospel of Mark. Now, in fact, the four Gospels are anonymous texts. We don't know who wrote them. An early tradition says it's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Hold the horse while I get on. But they are anonymous texts and that's not an accident. It's not as if we lost the title page. So a quick early question is why are the Gospels deliberately anonymous? And the answer is the evangelists, they don't want you to know who they are. They don't want you to look at them They want you to look at Jesus. So the art of self-concealment of the evangelists serves what we call a rhetoric of glorification. They want to glorify Jesus. Even though the evangelists are in fact the puppet masters, as it were, they're in charge of the story they tell. They decide when Jesus appears on the story. They decide what Jesus will do and say when he does appear on the stage of the story. So in that sense, the The evangelists are in charge in the the story world that they create, but they don't want you to look at the fact that they're in charge. They want you to come to glorify Jesus because he's the one who's in charge. So they hide themselves. I spent years of my life living and working with the Gospel of Luke. It's like being married. The first thing you see in the morning is the Gospel of Luke. The last thing you see at night. And the closer I came to Luke, the the more he was like a mirage. I presume it was a he. But you can't ever really know who they were. You can put two and two together to get about six, and that's what I'm going to do tonight. My question then is, why was the Gospel of Mark written at all? Why didn't this person, whoever Mark was, why didn't he pick up his pen or his quill or his stylus on a wax tablet, and write another letter. I mean, the the letters of Paul had proven to be powerful and successful. They'd done the rounds. They weren't just read by the communities to which they they were written. Because these letters had a transcendent quality, in other words, a capacity to speak to any Christian community anywhere, anytime. Why do we read the letters of Paul still? because they can speak to us in Brisbane in the 21st century just as much as they can speak to the community at Philippi in the 1st century. That's what I mean by a transcendent quality. So if these letters were so powerful and so effective a form of communication, why did this first evangelist we call Mark, why did he bother to write in a completely different way and in fact to create a literary form the like of which we'd never seen before. These Gospels, they have parallels in the ancient literary world, but there's nothing quite like them. So what the evangelist Mark comes up with is a a new literary form, a new kind of writing, a new kind of storytelling. See, Paul didn't tell stories. Mark does. 
He tells a story. So why did he start telling a story? Not just writing a letter that implies a story. And the answer is because he was addressing a totally new kind of situation. It wasn't enough to write a letter. He had to create something different. New wine meant new wineskins. So what was this totally new situation that evoked this totally new response that we call the Gospel of Mark? Now, almost certainly the Gospel of Mark was written in, shall we say, the late 60s. And I, like many others, would think that it was written in Rome and for the Roman Church. So you have to ask yourself the question, what was going on in Rome at about that time that might have created a new moment of crisis that called for a new kind of response? In other words, a kind of... Paul had faced crises in his community, communities. But Mark seems to have faced a new kind of crisis. And reading between the lines and putting two and two together to get five or six, the event that begins to, to answer the question why are the persecutions that happen under Nero. You've heard of him? Played a mean violin. Now, Nero is emperor in the mid-60s. Before him, Christians had sporadically been persecuted. But what emerges under Nero, and this is critical, is a new kind of persecution. Because you didn't have to do anything at all other than be Christian to cop it sweet. In fact, to be executed, and brutally. Under the Neronic persecutions... Simply to be a Christian was a capital offence and that had never happened before in this young phenomenon called Christianity. Christianity that had probably been in Rome for at most for 30 years. We don't exactly know how the church came to Rome. It wasn't founded by Peter and Paul. It may well have been found by, founded by Jewish pilgrims who went to Rome to Jerusalem for Pentecost and there encountered that first surge of apostolic preaching recorded in the Acts of the Apostles and who, came, who went to Jerusalem as Jews and came back as Christians and, and were the seed of Roman Christianity. Which interestingly, in the, the early period of the church, the Roman church was always a very strongly Jewish Christian church. So we don't know who brought, exactly who brought Christianity to Rome. We do know that Peter and Paul died in Rome and were buried there and they were among the many who were swept away in the tide of blood under the Emperor Nero. And this seems to have been the new kind of crisis that the Gospel of Mark seeks to address. See, the story is this. Let's imagine that we are the Roman Church here in the cathedral tonight. Now you had become a Christian because you had heard a great promise. Peace forever. A joy that nothing and no one could destroy. The fullness of life. All that Easter gathers up and makes possible. That was the promise. 
that had enticed you, empowered you, so that you entered this community of disciples, this community of faith we call a church, the thing that belongs to the kurios, the Lord, the Lord's thing. That's what the church means. Now, however, you hear roaring in the background the lions hungry for their lunch. And the Christians are being fed to them as lunch, you and me. Now, at that point, you would be entitled to say, and many were saying it, this wasn't the deal. I didn't become a Christian to be eaten by the lions or whatever, burnt as a living torch in the garden of the emperor. That wasn't the deal. I'm out of here. And that, I think, is what was happening to the Roman church. Its very existence was threatened by the kind of apostasy, the turning away, that came once the Neuronic persecutions broke out. So faced with this mortal crisis, Mark takes up his quill or whatever and he begins to tell a story. Now, it's a very strange story. If you go to the first sentence of the Gospel of Mark, here it comes in a literal translation. A beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. So you, as the reader, you're leading into a secret. This is going to be a story of good news. It's stated very clearly. The good news of Jesus. But then, as Mark's story unfolds, it seems to be unrelenting bad news. Which implies the question, is this good news or bad news? And consistently through this bad news story that's good news, the Gospels get Jesus wrong again and again and again. They are as thick as a brick. They don't understand what's going on. They think they do, but they don't in fact. They look at death and they think it's death. They can't distinguish between death and life, the ultimate confusion. So the question that Mark, in telling his tale, this dark, rushing tale that rushes into the darkness of Calvary and has Jesus die in the darkness, crying out, why have you forsaken me, screaming in the darkness, is, is the, the story of the crucifixion that Mark tells. Luke, by comparison, has a very peaceful and... Um, commanding Jesus, who says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. John's Jesus, into your hand, Luke says, into your hands I commend my spirit. The Jesus of John's passion story, again, is extraordinarily composed. Not the Jesus of Mark, because his community wasn't composed. They were screaming in the darkness too. See, what he does is he interprets the experience of his community by focusing upon the death of Jesus. There it is there. That crucifix is Jesus breaking free. Well, it's not a crucifix, it's a cruciform. But it's Jesus breaking free. 
of all that Calvary was. In other words, the crucified rising from the dead. So Mark, in telling this tale that hastens to Calvary, it's been called a passion story with a long introduction. And it's only the length of a short story, the Gospel of Mark, but it changed not only the Roman Church, it changed the world. In taking as the interpretative key for his community's experience the death of Jesus, what's he saying? He's saying that your, what you are experiencing now, which seems to be death, in fact is birth. Both are painful, birth and death, but don't confuse the pangs of birth with the pangs of death. That again is the ultimate confusion. The death of Jesus looked like disaster, devastation, destruction. The end of the penny section. But in fact it was birth. It wasn't defeat, it was triumph. And similarly what you are experiencing, Roman Church, this is the birth of the church. And think of the great cry that's echoed down through the centuries. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christianity. How true it is. And that's what Mark is saying to a community that began to know its own martyrs. So is it good news or bad news? This is a, a, a question that every community, Christian community has to ask from age to age. And we're, we're faced with the same question now. Is it good news or is it bad news? Is it birth or is it death? These are questions for every Christian community and every believer, every disciple in every age. That's why we still read the Gospel of Mark. If I go from the first sentence to the last sentence of Mark's Gospel, you'll see more of what I mean. As we find it in the New Testament, there are two endings to the Gospel of Mark. There's the one that Mark wrote, which has been called the greatest non-ending in all literature. And because it's such a mysteriously unfinished story, the Gospel of Mark, people very early on read it and said, no, we need to add something to finish it. It's as if we've lost the last page. So they added a longer conclusion. In my own reading, the Gospel of Mark finishes like this. Jesus has been crucified and is laid in the tomb. And then we're told this. The women go to the tomb and they're saying, who will roll the stone away from the door? And then they see that the stone had been rolled back and they enter the tomb, the women, and there was someone sitting there in a white row who says, don't be amazed. Well, it's easy for him to say so. Don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. Whatever that means, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now here it comes. Give, these two women are given a very specific task by this heavenly messenger. Go now and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, up in the north. There you will see him as he told you. Now it could hardly be more specific, could it not? Tell, go and tell the disciples and Peter to go up to Galilee. Don't say, go to Galilee. 
and he'll actually see them there. Well, what are the women to make of all this? Well, let's see how they react. And this is the way Mark finishes the Gospel. And the women, they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had come upon them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So they're given a very specific task and what do they do? They disobey. They don't do what they have been commanded to do. They say nothing to anyone. They run away And why do they run away? Because they are afraid. Just as Mark's Roman community was afraid. So in other words, Mark ends the Gospel with a story of failure because of fear. And these are things which every Christ, the church in every time and place and culture has to grapple with. F- failure because of fear. Now, implied in that strange non-ending, there is another story. The Bible revels in an art of implication. It loves to imply much more than it says explicitly. What's implied is that eventually... The women move beyond their fear and their failure to do what they were told to do. So that fear and failure implicitly don't have the last word in this story. How do we know they move beyond their fear and failure? Because how else would we have the story? Who else could could have told this story except those two women? So at some point... They get beyond their fear and they tell Peter and the disciples their story and then tell them to go to Galilee and Jesus will meet them there as Jesus does. So implied is a victory over fear and failure. And that's the whole point of this gospel. A community being ripped apart under the pressure of an unprecedented kind of persecution, is led, to see, led beyond fear. And who wouldn't be afraid if you're being fed to the lions? And who wouldn't be tempted to fail, to run away and say nothing to anybody? And in our own time, in our own place, how many of the church's failures are driven by fear? This is, it astonishes me with these texts, that transcendent capacity they have. And it's why they eventually found their way into the, the Bible as we have it. There were many other Gospels written. But when you read the other Gospels that didn't find their way into the New Testament, you enter a different kind of world. It's kind of fairy tale world. Magic and all that stuff. But there's a, there's a, 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 a penetrating, powerful realism about the four canonical Gospels, as we call them. And it's that realism that enables them to interpret the church's experience and the believer's experience from age to age and place to place. And that's why we say they're inspired texts. 
that power to communicate that we associate with God, to communicate to every time and place and culture and person, doesn't matter who you are or where you are, when you are. There is a communication here that is so transcendent that we call it the word of God, not just the word of some bloke we call Mark, but here in fact you have God communicating to human beings under the hammer. And the Bible is always addressed to the human being under the hammer. We began, we saw this in an earlier session, with slaves set free. But you begin with the slaves and the fact of slavery. And you move from there. But if you don't get to that point of saying, I am afraid, I have failed, I am slave, I am under the hammer, you don't get to the next bit. You run off and read Barbara Cartland. The question is how successful was this extraordinary performance by this mysterious figure we call Mark? Clearly the fact that we still read it and I'm standing here tonight talking to you about it suggests that it was a hugely powerful text and it remains that to, to this day. It might have been written in Rome and for the community of Rome, but quickly it did the rounds of the, ch the early churches. It was read in all the churches as they came to see that we too need to set our fears and failures in the light of Christ crucified. Only the contemplation of the crucifix, the crucified one, enables us to understand our own experience of fear and failure and to distinguish ultimately between life and death. Is it birth? Is it death? Both have pangs, but don't confuse them. Now, if the Gospel of Mark was so powerful and so transcendently communicative, the question then becomes, well, why did we need other Gospels? Why didn't we just keep reading Mark? But in fact, we have three other canonical Gospels written in quite different circumstances to meet different needs and they were written in a different time. So let me turn now to the Gospel of Luke. And again, I ask the question, why did Luke bother? In fact, Luke, Luke bothered a great deal. He didn't write just the Gospel, to which his name is attached. He also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. So if you put Luke's Gospel, 24 chapters, and the 28 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles together, you get one quarter of the New Testament. Not bad. And they didn't have computers where writing was easy. Writing was hard and slow and costly. So Luke must have been driven by some powerful motivation to compose one quarter of the New Testament. And again, the question is why? Now, he writes a different gospel because he's facing very, very different circumstances and a different kind of crisis. Again, I stress that the gospels are crisis literature. But again, I stress that the human being, whether she or he recognises it, is always in crisis. The word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis, which simply means judgment. We're all under judgment in all kinds of ways all the time. So, I mean, if you, feel, if you are at a moment of crisis in your life, don't panic. 
I would suggest, and if the church is passing through a time of crisis, which we are, then again, don't panic. Read the Gospels. In other words, there is a God who communicates uniquely to the human being in moments of crisis. And that's, that's why these texts matter and that's what living biblically in a secular age in the end is all about. God comes to our rescue at the point of crisis and if you don't think it's crisis, well, there probably won't be much of a rescue. One crucial fact lies between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke and it is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. Now, you've always got to keep the destruction on the radar screen when you're reading the New Testament. In many ways, it was that destruction in 70 that gave us the New Testament as we have it, just as it was the Babylonian exile, the catastrophe, that gave us the Old Testament as we have it. So the Bible, again, was born of two disasters, two catastrophes. In the destruction of 70 where the Romans wrought a fierce vengeance because they had been in, the mighty Roman armies had been embarrassed by the guerrilla warfare waged in the Jewish war of 66 to 70. Not unlike Vietnam for the Americans. This huge army bogged down in the face of a kind of a guerrilla warfare. Rome was peerless at the pitched battle. No one could beat them. But the Jewish war wasn't fought as a pitched battle. It was guerrilla warfare, and the Romans weren't used to that. When finally, after this embarrassing four-year struggle, they take Jerusalem, the capital, the havoc that they wrought was in proportion to the embarrassment they had suffered. The city was absolutely annihilated with the efficient brutality that only Rome could muster. Now, at that point, most of Judaism vanishes into a black hole of history. But so too, the mother church in Jerusalem is swept away into the black hole of history. And at that point, the centre of gravity or authority in Christianity begins to move across the Mediterranean from Jerusalem to Rome. And that's where you have the, the, the origins of the papacy as we've come to know it. The shift from Jerusalem across the Mediterranean to the imperial capital after the destruction in 70. Now, Luke writes beyond the destruction, as does Matthew. Matthew and Luke are, are roughly contemporary, but they're very different Gospels. I mean, again, keep in mind that the, the four Gospels are like four different portraits of Jesus. Now, four different portrait painters walked in to the cathedral tonight and did four portraits of me, or you. You wouldn't see four identical paintings. Why? Because the, a portrait is not just a depiction, it's an interpretation of you. And the four interpretations would be different. Similarly, the Gospels aren't depictions of Jesus, they're not just the facts, the whole facts, and nothing but the facts. They are interpretations of Jesus, addressed to, to believers under the hammer, in one way or another. So what kind of crisis provokes Luke to write his very different story of Jesus, to interpret Jesus so differently for the community or communities that he was addressing. Again, this is not ivory tower literature, folks. 
These Gospels were written under pressure for people like you, flesh and blood, with all kinds of questions, uncertainties, fears, failures. We get some sense of why he he bothers, instead of just reading the Gospel of Mark again, why he tells his own story, offers his own interpretation. Again, in the very first sentence, it's a long one, I'm going to read it to you. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been fulfilled among us, in other words, he says others have written other stories, yep, or Mark has, we know that for sure, Uh, a narrative of the things fulfilled among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, so he's part of a tradition of handing on the story. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, so he's done his homework, done his research, followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, orderly account, that's what he's going to give us, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Well, who is, who is this most excellent Theophilus? Well, we don't know. Whoever Theophilus was is vanished forever. But as soon as you and I start reading the Gospel of Luke, who do we become? Theophilus, it's you. I'm looking at a bunch of Theophiluses here in the cathedral and you're looking at one here. So what do we learn about this Theophilus? I'm going to write an orderly account for you. Here we go. That you may know... So this story is told in the interest of some kind of knowledge that you may know the well-foundedness of the things which you have been taught. Okay, so in order to give you a knowledge of the well-foundedness of what you've been taught as a disciple... Now what does that tell us about this mysterious Theophilus and about ourselves? Well, if he needs to gain more knowledge of the well-foundedness of what he's been taught, it implies that he's not too sure. He's been taught certain things, so have you. All kinds of things in the body of Christian and Catholic teaching. But Theophilus, who's no beginner... He's no neophyte. He has been taught. So this is no gospel for beginners. But he's now not too sure. A kind of uncertainty, a corrosive uncertainty begins to creep up on Theophilus. Do you know the feeling? I'd be very surprised in an age of doubt like this if you didn't. Who of us would deny that doubt and hesitation, uncertainty, ambiguity, questions, everything of that kind swirls around in that experience we call faith? I mean, again, the story of Thomas at the end of John's Gospel makes it clear that doubt isn't the opposite of faith, it's part of the journey of faith. You know, Thomas's cry, my Lord, my God, comes forth from the crucible of doubt. So, so what, what Luke does is tell a story that seeks to provide reassurance 
to those who aren't too sure. And this is where Luke's gospel begins to interpret us. In the end, what we will see, and I do mean in the end because we will go to the end of Luke's gospel, it's this uncertainty, lack of assurance, that is draining away the energy for mission. And that, I think, is the crisis that Luke addresses in the 80s of the first century. A community or communities in which a corrosive uncertainty was draining away the energy for mission and the church was beginning to see less, to hear less, to turn in upon itself and to become a glee club. Again, does it sound familiar? I think it does. So, that you may know the well-foundedness concerning the things of which you have been informed. Now, what have you been informed of? What have you been taught? You've been taught that God has made certain promises. And here I, I think of the figure of Abraham, our father in faith. Abraham receives these two fantastic promises. Children of his own and a land of his own, the two things that he lacked. Both of them seemed outrageous, highly unlikely promises. Against all the odds. But they're the promises God makes. And eventually the promises are fulfilled. You've been taught that. God keeps his promise. The promises are fulfilled. But, but the ways of fulfilment are strange. And very often we're kind of imprisoned in our own expectations. We say, if God doesn't fulfil the promise in the way I expect, then there's no fulfilment. The promise was a load of rubbish. Or God is unfaith, if God's there at all, God makes a promise but doesn't keep it. So Luke says, yes, Theophilus, I know that the ways of fulfilment are strange. And they're never stranger than when Jesus hangs on a cross at Calvary. But the very first thing Jesus is shown as doing independently in the Gospel and saying is strange. What's the first thing in Luke's Gospel that Jesus does as an independent actor in the story? The first thing he does is go missing after the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You know the story? When he's a boy of 12. It's bizarre just to go missing with saying nothing to anybody and Mary when she finds him in the temple says exactly what you'd expect a mother to say my son why have you done this to us in other words it's so bizarre why and then the first word Jesus speaks in the gospel of Luke why were you looking for me what kind of a question is that because you're our son or my son did you, here goes Jesus again. Did you not know that I must be in the things of my father, according to the Greek? What are you talking about? So the first thing Luke has Jesus do is strange. The first thing Jesus says is strange. Why? Because many things that Jesus does and says in the gospel will be strange. And never stranger, I repeat, than when he hangs on the cross 
as the Messiah. See, you have to have eyes that can read the strangeness. And if you don't, you say there has been no fulfilment. The corrosive uncertainty, the acid rain, eats into your soul and all the energy for mission, and Christianity is a mission, all the energy for mission just drains away. So that's where he tells an orderly story, to use his word, but there's, a, there's a, no mean degree of disorder in the story. In other words, he, he sets into the telling of the tale deliberately a dissonance so that it's a challenge of perception to see the ways of God's fulfilment of the promise. Strange they might be, but magnificent they are. So if I go to the very end of the Gospel of Luke, and the last great story in the, the, uh, the Gospel of Luke is, as you know, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Classic. It's Luke's Gospel in a nutshell. The two disciples, they've seen something, but they haven't seen anything. They see Jesus on the cross, and what do they think? Oh, it's disaster, devastation, death, doom, all those D words that end in death. They've seen something, but they haven't seen. Then Jesus walks with them on the way. Once you don't see properly, you walk away, downcast, depressed. Jesus walks with them. They see him, but they don't see him until their eyes are opened. That's what the whole Gospel of Luke is about, opening eyes. And then you say, ah, I never saw it. I never saw it until now. And once you see, really see, everything changes. But what changes most is you change. See, that once their eyes are opened, Jesus vanishes from their sight, we're told. Why? Because once your eyes opened, you don't need him sitting across a table physically. You see Jesus everywhere. You drown in Jesus. And they turn around. They go back through the darkness with night vision. They're, Jerusalem is the same, but they're different. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is all about. Opening eyes. They say, And then... Here's the punchline uh, that flows from what I've just said. The punchline which comes right at the end of Luke's Gospel. Jesus appeared, the risen Christ. Who would have thought it? But there he is. Well, here he is. He appears to them and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures just as he had opened their eyes to see his presence, the risen one, against all the odds. How strange is this? And here's what he says. It is written that the Christ should suffer. It was all part of the plan of God. You couldn't see it. But it was all part of God's plan that he should suffer and then rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations. So so new life, beginning from Jerusalem. And here's the punchline. You are witnesses to this. Now what's a witness? A witness is someone who's seen something or heard something and that's exactly what the risen Jesus means in Luke's Gospel. You've seen the risen Christ. Your eyes have been opened. You've heard him and you understand what he's saying. 
And only then are you equipped for mission. Only then are you equipped to be a witness, which is what a missionary means. Just by the way, the word in Greek for witness is martyr. The two go hand in hand. Why then does Luke write Acts of the Apostles to follow his gospel? Because that tells the story of the witnessing for which they have been equipped through the gospel. So in that sense, the gospel is like a seminary that trains missionaries and the Acts of the Apostles tells the story of their mission, their witnessing, after they have been properly trained, after they have been equipped. I conclude then with the reflection that these two Gospels, and I could say the same if we had more time, of Matthew and John, very different stories, but again they are all written for communities in strife of one kind or another and all written in order to lead that community beyond the strife to a new kind of empowerment so that they can be not only disciples but missionaries. They're the the two words Pope Francis uses as a refrain of his pontificate. We have to be missionary disciples. And you see, we talk about new evangelisation. Actually, Pope Francis doesn't use the phrase much at all, but we've, we've become familiar with that, that call to a new evangelization, a new surge of gospel energy. But, but if there's not a new experience of empowerment, the phrase itself can become just a mantra. Say it often enough and it's just going to happen magically. New evangelization, new evangelization, new evangelization. It doesn't work like that. Where is the energy going to come from for this new surge of gospel energy? Again, according to Mark, it will be going to the heart of our fears and failures and beyond them. For Luke, it will be that experience of the opening of the eye, the opening of the ear, so that you see and hear in a new way. There's a famous old priest in Italy who, even in very old age, had a genius for communicating, particularly with young people and and university students, even more particularly. And there was one moment where he was talking to a group of university students and he was asked a very intelligent questions as university students can do and in reply to the question the old priest just was silent for a moment and then he said I see what you see but I see more now that's what the gospel of Mark and Luke are about Teaching us to see, yeah, as everyone else does, but to see more. And the more in the end is the presence here and now of of, of the risen Christ, the one whose scars shine like the sun. To see him and hear him, that experience is Christianity. Now, And and to to go to the heart of our corrosive uncertainty, the heart of our fear and failure, and then go beyond. That is living biblically, not just in this secular age. That's living biblically. In a secular age that that can close the eye and the ear, it's urgent that we have disciples of the open eye and the open ear. 
In other words, a missionary church, even if we're under pressure. What's new? To summarise at the end of this journey of the seven sessions, if I had to choose one word to go to the very heart of living biblically in a secular age, it would be the word hope. H-O-P-E. Which is not a native on this planet. It's an exotic. It's got real hope has to come from somewhere else. And real hope is the one thing the human being in the end can't do without. God understands that because he created our heart. Us. So the biblical word, the biblical communication, God to us, is all about that, that genuine hope that lasts a lifetime and into eternity. Not some cosmetic hope, there are lots of them around. They vanish with the dawn. It begins as slaves set free, but it becomes much more, and I've suggested how much more here this evening. To come to that hope is to have the eye that can read not only the biblical text, but therefore the text of my life, the text of the world, the text of this society at this time. In other words, the eye that really sees God. The God is everywhere. I mean, it's it's not a question of saying God is here but not there. The fact is, once Jesus rises from the dead, God is everywhere. The only question is, have you got an eye to see God? You know, to say that this is a secular age or a highly secularised culture is not to say that it's God-less. It might seem to be. God's there. It's only a question of where and how and have we got the eye to see. So even the gaps and the silences, to read the Bible well, you've got to read the gaps and the silences. Black fire on white fire, the, the, the rabbis call it. The black fire of the black of the words, you know, black type. But look at all the white fire. It's all fire. The margins around the words, the gaps. You've got to read the gaps and the silences, the white fire, not just the black fire. And if you can do that, you can read the, the, the white fire of your own life and the white fire of the world. There's heaps of that. And if we can't read the gaps and the silences, we're in trouble. If we stick only to the words... I mean, the word of God, strangely, is often a gap or a silence. Make of that what you will, but it's true. So in a secular world, what, what do we look for? Where do we start trying to spot the, what, what would I call them, the outcrops of God? Or see God where God is, even in the most strange and surprising places. We start by looking at values that we share, even with those who might seem most secularised. And I just jotted down a very quick list this afternoon. Things like freedom. It's a culture, this secular, yes, but obsessed with the notion of personal freedom. Now, of course, there are many ways of seeing and speaking about freedom, some of which are merely discourse about new forms of slavery. We all know that. But, but freedom is a huge value in this culture, however secular. Compassion. Love, justice, you're not going to get people fighting about this stuff. Truth, 
however differently we might understand it. But somehow to live biblically is not just to condemn that which we believe to be God-less, but that capacity to see shared values, yes, but not in any moralising sense. Christians don't do that or shouldn't. But to see the shared values and to see more and to say at that point this culture touches into God. The God who is there, however hidden. To live biblically in a, in a culture that is not only secular but noisy. And the two perhaps are interlinked. Noisy because secular. That if there is the one dimension only, then the noise has to try and fill the emptiness. It never does, it only makes it worse. But, but it is a noisy world, not just out there, but there, there's a lot of noise inside the human being these days. But what the Bible teaches is a kind of attentiveness. And I don't know how else it can be taught. In other words, a contemplative way of looking at the world, but an attentiveness which I associate with the open ear. In other words, a capacity to listen. And again, that word, listen, is set at the very fountainhead of the scripture. Shema Israel, listen Israel. Benedict picks it up in that radically biblical document we call the rule of St. Benedict. The first word of which is, listen, my son. Ausculta. So there, the, to, to live biblically is to live listeningly. To voices other than the noise, beyond the noise, and voices other than my own. Only if we can enter into that experience of living attentively and in a way that is truly contemplative, inhabiting the gaps and the silences, turning the silence of the tomb to the silence of the womb, a cold, dark, empty silence turned to a warm, joy-filled presence. Only if we can go from that one silence to the other, from the tomb to the womb, will we come to that experience of which Pope Francis has, has spoken so tellingly, joy. And I finish with that. To, to live biblically in a secular world is very often living the experience of joy in a joyless world a world where there can be lots of fun, and I've got nothing against fun, but it's not enough. We are made for joy, the ecstasy of God. Now, that joy is not superficial. It goes to the very depths of the human being, and it's given to those, and it must come always as a gift. The text offers the gift. And the gift is that sense of indestructibility. Once you see, once your eyes open and your ear is open, you realise they can't do anything to you. They can chop your head off or they can do all those horrible things. None of us wants that. But in the end, the joy which is always the joy of Easter, 
ties us into that sense of the indestructibility of the risen Christ. In other words, Christ raised from the dead, they can do nothing to him anymore. They, they, can't, they tried everything, it didn't work. And once he's raised from the dead, they can't do anything to him anymore. He is indestructible. And that kind of indestructibility he shares with us. And it's that kind of indestructibility that enables the experience of joy. So, finally, as I return to the silence from which I came, to live biblically in a secular age is to receive from the God who speaks the gift of a hope born always and only out of hopelessness and that in turn gives birth to a joy that is born always and only out of joylessness. Thank you.